You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. What a beautiful refrain. (laughs) We need that every moment, but I think especially as uh, someone tasked with preaching the word of God, it is even more so needed. And so that is my prayer as I come here. Uh, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Who is I? I am Nate Hughes. Some of you have known me for many years uh, since we were we lads uh, in seminary. Uh, others, maybe this is the first time uh, you're seeing me. Uh, I am the lesser of the Hugheses. The greater is my wife back there, Emily, and little Mila's back there. My boys are over there, Titus and Drexler. That is our family. Um, we have actually been around Missio for eight and a half years uh, as, as congregants, I guess. We've been around Missio even longer through my relationship with Chris. We were missionaries in the Czech Republic for seven and a half years before we moved back. And I don't know if it's a record. We don't keep records like that here. But I do know that I have held many different roles within Missio. So it might, it's not maybe not a record again, but... I, when we first came over, I was a church planting resident here. Then when we decided not to plant a church and we stayed here, we began leading a missional community with Nick and Danny Barker. And then we were commissioned as elders up to north of the 202. I don't know if any of you guys go up there, but there's a whole wonderful world, a better world actually up there, um, where, we, where we live. And we were leading an expression of Missio for a few years with a handful of families that are, that are here. That uh, closed, folded up shop, and we re-enfolded back into Missio, I think three years ago. I think it was three years ago this summer. And so we've been around Missio Tempe uh, since then. So it's been a long, long little journey. But that's, that's who I am and, and my family. Um, today we're going to talk about faith and trust. And while not an ideal analogy, I will start by talking about the NFL draft. I am a huge San Francisco, San Francisco 49ers fan. Uh, my family all grew up in the Bay Area, so 49ers, Giants, those are my teams. And I'm not going to bore you who are not sports fans with all of the details, but the 49ers uh, gave up a lot of assets to get the number three pick in the draft. And it was the most questionable pick. No one knew the direction the 49ers were going to go. I was personally torn. I was nervous like, I've been nervous for, like, a month, like, sillily, sillily, yep, and I just didn't, I was so nervous, but the general manager and the coach of the club have made a series of really, really good decisions over the past few years, and I came into Thursday in the end saying, you know what, I actually don't know if I should have a super strong opinion on who they should draft because I can actually trust them. 
They've made great decisions. They know way more about football they, than I do. They've spent way they've spent time with these guys. They've watched them way more than I do. I can trust them. So again, this is a bit of a silly illustration, but I realize like because of what they'd done in the past and who they are, I felt who am I? I can, I can trust these guys to make a good decision. And they made a bold decision, and we'll see in a couple years. Maybe the next time I preach, I'll give you an update on how their, their decision went. Um, but we are going to talk about trust. We're going to talk about faith. And we're going to do that through the book of Judges and a judge, a deliverer by the name of Gideon. But before we jump into that, because we're doing this sweeping arc of the story uh, this year, preaching through it all, it's important that we know uh, where we are in the story. So imagine, if you can, the story symbols. I think you, probably many of you have seen them or know them, but you have a God who created the world, good, right, and perfect, and created us as the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, and we rebelled against this good king. That's the X, so a down arrow, then the X, and then the forward arrow is him initiating his covenant, his promise with his people. He creates a nation, and that nation is pointing forward to a promised Messiah, a deliverer, a, a savior, a king, a prophet, and it's pointing forward, and they're meant to live as this beautiful, holy nation set apart to be a light to the other nations, and then they are really bad at that, which we'll see. And then the Messiah eventually comes. That's the cross. Jesus, he comes. He shows what it looks like to live as true Israel. He fulfills all of these promises. And he comes as king. But then surprising to everyone, he dies. And then also surprising to everyone, he resurrects. And he in part, defeats sin and death and reigns as king, but not fully. And so he institutes his church to be another forward-pointing arrow to point towards the time when he will come back to fully and finally redeem his good creation. So where are we in the story? We're in this first forward arrow. This book of Judges is in this first forward arrow. Chris last week preached on Joshua. That is the return of Israel back to this promised land, uh, that, that God promised to Abraham back in Genesis 12. And so the people have gone back into the land. And what Chris didn't talk about last week, I, maybe he mentioned it in passing, but that after they enter the promised land, they don't do a very good job of obeying God. And so they don't get rid of all the nations who are there. And those nations become a thorn in Israel's side. But now we're in this, this season of time in Judges where the people are established in the land. They, are, they have like received this promise of the land and now they're living in it. And they, they get to begin living as this people of God set apart to be a light to the nations. And as we'll see in the book of Judges and particularly in Gideon, who's just a, uh, a highlight of, of a series of uh, kind of scenes throughout, throughout Israel's history, they do a very... A poor job of being a light to the nations. Judges follows a really specific cycle. One, Israel does evil. Two, Yahweh, God, sends a foreign army 
to oppress them, harass them. Three, Israel cries out to Yahweh for salvation. Four, God sends his deliverer. Five, they live in peace. And then it cycles back to one where Israel does evil in the sight of God. Gideon is one of these deliverers that God raises up. And that's what we're going to look at now. There are two and a half chapters on Gideon. We are not, I attempted to try as I practice my sermon to uh, read all of it. And it's impossible unless you guys want to be here for hours. But you might be for, here for hours with me chasing my notes. And so uh, we're not going to read it all. So we're going to kind of gloss over parts, highlighting, highlighting certain parts. And the first part we're going to highlight is from Judges 5. It is the last sentence in chapter 5. Then the land had peace for 40 years. So that's the end of one cycle. The land had peace for 40 years. And then, verse 1, the Israel, Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's part 2. Or that's the start of a new cycle. Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, part 2, for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of the Midianites was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Number three, Israel cries out to Yahweh for salvation. First thing I want to just mention briefly. It took the Israelites seven years of hard oppression for them to cry out to the Lord. That seems awfully hard-hearted. They're living in the clefts of mountains. They've, they've, they're essentially like been kicked to the edges of this land that they've been given. And the Midianites are coming in and just ravishing their land and destroying all their crops. And yet they wait seven years we're not going to break into groups for this because I want to save that for another question later on. But I just want you to be thinking and pondering this question as, as we go through this story. What drives you to your knees? What is it that, that what do you have to endure to force you to your knees to cry out to Yahweh? And I'm speaking, thinking mostly of what are those things that take seven years of grinding against to drive you to your knees? Where, where is the hard, broken part of your heart that takes a long time of suffering before you'll fall to your knees? But God is so good, he raises up a deliverer, he hears their cry, he sends a prophet and that prophet tells them all these things about who God is um, and what he's done. He's driven, driven the oppressors out in the past. He's given you their land. 
I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me. And then here's the call of Gideon. Here's uh, the, the, the rising up of a deliverer, step four of this cycle. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joaz, the Abiezrite, the Abiezrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have. That's annoying. Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. We'll pause there. The first thing to note is that God, before he even calls Gideon, asks him to do anything, he reminds him of his presence. He says, I am with you. And Gideon's identity, you are a mighty warrior. Now remember, Gideon is in a wine press threshing wheat, which I think, I don't know for sure, but I don't think you're normally supposed to thresh wheat in a wine press, I'm guessing. So it seems like this is kind of a, uh, like a visualization of how the Israelites are like using whatever resources they have to do what they can, right? So they're using one thing for what its unintended purpose is because that's all they have. And so, but this angel of the Lord declares to him, you are a mighty warrior. So he's telling him, this is who you are. And again, Gideon continues asking questions and uh, he, sa- he asks these questions like, okay, pardon me. He's like, respectful, but pardon me, Lord. Uh, We've heard all these great things about who you are, but I'm looking around me and I don't see this same situation playing out around me. And God, again, just assures him. He says, I am sending you and I will be with you. He endures these questions, but then reaffirms who God is and who Gideon is and what he wants him to do. Here's why I want us to camp for a second. Gideon asked God some really hard questions. I think the hard questions of faith are centered around us knowing what's true about God, but looking around us and seeing something different. We've heard something about who God is, and yet when we look at the world around us, we see something different. Right now in the church, in really the white evangelical church, that's a discussion for another time, but there is uh, a movement of deconstruction happening to the faith where people are asking hard questions about the faith and are deconstructing. They're, They're tearing their faith down. Again, 
probably a conversation for another time. Not all deconstruction is bad. So as I come and talk about it, I actually think we have to deconstruct our faith from the faith of our culture, the faith of our childhood, the ways that our, our, our the, the gospel, the good news, the truth has become uh, intertwined with things that are untrue. Okay, so I'm saying that over here. But I'm watching some of my friends, maybe some of you out here. One of my friends from college has a whole podcast um, that is deconstructing the faith. And here's why they're doing that, I believe. They had this faith as a child, as a, as a young person. Most, I'll also say this. Most of the people I know all grew up in the church and are now deconstructing their faith 20, 30 years later. And here's why I think this is happening. They have all this truth that they've been told. Some of it's not true. That's the problem. And then they look at the world around them and they see something that looks different and now they're having to wrestle with those things. The problem is we as the church, I, led, I did youth ministry for about 20 years of my life. So I'm, when I say we, it's not like uh, hyperbolic. It's like literally me. We have done, we, and we did, a very poor job of allowing hard questions to be asked. We gave all the answers to hard questions. And here's where it gets even trickier. That's called apologetics. If you grew up in the church, you probably experienced this. You're going on a mission trip. You need to know how to answer all these hard questions. Pop, 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 pop. So we all know the answers to hard questions. The problem is they aren't our questions. And when we started asking those questions in the church, they were ignored. Or you were said to not have faith. And so the kids, or us, grew up without our questions being answered. And now we're looking around and saying, what, what's the truth? I thought this was all true, but I was never allowed to ask hard questions. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to find some people around you. Hey, this is hard. So if you don't feel comfortable doing this, I understand. But if you have been around Missio for a long time, I'm going to ask you to be vulnerable. First, we're going to take 30 seconds and just in the stillness of our own hearts, Maybe some of you right away say, this is the question that I have that I struggle with. Some of you might need some time to like really ask it and find it. Then turn to someone. No one's going to respond. Your group, I just want you to share your hard question. Group, don't answer it. That's not what we're here for. That's why we're in this mess, I think, a little bit, is we've tried to answer these hard questions too quickly. So let's let the question be asked. Now, the second part's a lot harder. In your heart, don't judge them for their question. <laughs> That's a lot harder, right? Because all of our questions are going to be different. So when one person says, I'm struggling with homosexuality and how does that fit with the church, someone might judge that really harshly. Someone else might say, I don't understand, like, how's God good when uh, there's suffering in my life? And someone might just, just you're all going to have different questions. So the two things I want you to do, Say your question and then don't judge the people around you. And we're not going to answer them. We're not even going to talk about them. So it's going to be really quick. 30 seconds of, of sitting and thinking and then probably 30 seconds of each person saying their question. Then we're going to get back into it. Go. One of our friends who is currently 
going walking through this process, we're trying to convince them to come to Missio because I actually think we are a place that allows hard questions to be asked. And I think we walk well with people who ask hard questions, but I do know that we we can do better. And so that's a call to myself, um, but also us as the church to to be better at allowing the hard questions to live in the tension of some of the unknown of the faith. Um, there is a lot that's unknown, especially with the brokenness. It makes it messy. And so these, it, these questions are valid because the world around us is broken and messy and we're broken and messy and questions should arrive when we read what's true about the good news of, of, of Jesus Christ and then look at the world around us. Let's keep going. Gideon then says he, he doesn't God. So here's God doesn't answer either of his questions or any of his questions. Really. He just kind of like continues affirming who he is and what he's done and who Gideon is and, and what he wants Gideon to do, which I think we've, you guys have maybe heard that stuff before. So, but then Gideon still is like, okay, God, all right. If, if it's true that I found favor in your eyes, then I need a sign. So he goes inside, he gets some meat, he gets some unleavened bread, he brings it back out, he puts it on a rock, and the angel of the Lord takes a staff, touches it, fire comes up, and Gideon's like, okay, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace, do not be afraid, you're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. So Gideon asked for a sign, God answers his sign, and... Gideon worships, and then he gets to work. This is what's cool about Gideon. He gets to work. That night, he's a little scared, so he doesn't do it it during the day. We'll talk about that fear later. He doesn't do it during the day. He goes out at night. He tears down an altar to a foreign god. He tears down the Asherah poles, also worshiping foreign gods. He tears this all down. The people are like, what the heck's going on? Gideon's dad's like, listen, like, if these gods are real, then they'll come and defend themselves. And the people are like, okay, let's rename uh, Gideon. So they rename him something crazy. Uh, where is it? Oh, so they're like, let's name him Jerob Baal. That means let Baal contend with him. So that happens. Gideon then is like, okay, I've done one thing now. I've torn down all these. Uh Then the Midianites, Amalekites, other Eastern people cross the Jordan. They come back into the land of Israel. Uh, They take possession of the land. And now Gideon's faced again. Now I have to actually do this thing that God called me to do, which is go and defeat the the Midianites. Uh, So then he comes to God again. He's like, okay, listen, if you're going to save Israel, I just need another sign that you're going to do it to give me some confidence. So he takes this fleece. Now, those of you who grew up in the church, this is like the famous Gideon story is this story here. This is, the, this is what they have flannel graph like cutouts for. He takes his fleece. He, first off, signs are like wild in the Bible, right? Like this is super creative. Like, okay, what's a sign I can ask for God? First time he just sent fire. This time I'm gonna say, I'm gonna take a fleece. I'm gonna lay it out there. I'm going to go to sleep, and I want all the dew to go on that fleece and then the, ra- the land around the fleece to be dry. So Gideon goes to sleep. He wakes up, and that's true. He wrings out the fleece, a cup full of water, 
And he's like, gosh, I'm still really scared. I still really, really need to know, God, that you are going to deliver the, uh, the Midianites into our hand. So just in case that was an accident overnight, I want you to do the opposite. Leave the fleece dry and the ground around it wet. We'll see how good you are. Gideon goes to sleep. He wakes up. Sure enough, fleece is dry, ground around it's wet. And he's like, okay, let's get to work again. Early in the morning. This is what's cool about Gideon. Like once he gets these signs, he doesn't dilly-dally. Like he, he gets to work. So one, it's like that night. Next, early in the morning, they go out to camp. Uh, he calls all these people together. He's got 32,000 people. That's actually a little out of order. He calls the 32,000 first. Well, then God's like, okay, you asked for signs. Now I'm going to ask you to show me some more of your faith. So he says, I want you to go and ask the 32,000 people. If any of them are scared, they can go. They can leave. They can go home. So Gideon's like, okay, how many of you 32,000 are scared? And there's like 22,000 who say, we're scared, and they all leave. So Gideon's left with 10,000. So these 10,000 dudes are like, I'm not scared. It's like total toxic masculinity, right? Like, leave the 10,000 who aren't scared at all. All right, let's go. And then God's like, hey, that's actually still too much because I don't want you to say that this was your work. I don't want Israel to take any credit. I'm the one who's going to do this, and I need to make sure that you de- you tell everyone and that everyone knows that I did this. So now, again, bizarre way to discern who stays and goes. He says, okay, you're going to come to a river and I want everyone to go and get a drink of water. Now the people who bend down and get on their knees and I guess drink directly from the water, that's one group of people. The other group of people are those who cup it in their hand and lap it like a dog. Okay. So, So 300 people 300 men cup it and lap it like a dog. And he's like, those are my guys. Again, like the dudes who aren't scared and the guys who act like dogs. Like these are the 300 I want to go with. So he's like, okay, these are your 300 that you get to uh, defeat the Midianites with. And then this beautiful little passage. These are the things that like, we can read the Bible so many times and just miss. And this is where the flannel graph like fails us. The flannel graph doesn't have this in verse 9. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, I bet Gideon is not sleeping. This is the middle of the night. You know, we've all been there, right? Where we're super nervous or we're scared or we've got anxiety and we're just laying in bed, like full of anxiety and fear. Those are often the sweetest and best times to be praying and hearing from the Lord. And I think that's what happened here. That's conjecture. But we do know during the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. If you are afraid, there's like 300, he's taking 300 men to go into battle against these, these Midianites who have been ravishing their land. Yes, he's afraid. God knows Gideon's afraid. And he says, if you're afraid, here's my grace to you. If you're afraid, go down to the camp. And it's important because they're in this valley and that, that matters. So he says, go down to this, go down to their camp and listen. And one of the Midianites has this prophetic dream And it's a dream about how the Midianites are going to lose and that Gideon's army is going to defeat them. 
And Gideon's like, okay, that's it. I'm ready to go. And so he gathers his 300 men and he gives them trumpets and he gives them all these pots and torches. And he divides them into thirds, 100. They surround the camp. So again, they're in this like valley, right? And I think this matters. So they're in this valley and they kind of gather around uh, the, the Midianites and Gideon, Gideon, oh shoot, I forgot a super important part. This is the problem with paraphrasing is you forget important parts. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshiped. This is another beautiful thing about Gideon. The first time uh, when God shows him the sign, he, he builds an altar and says that the, uh, the Lord, and calls it the Lord is peace. This time God gives him this other sign. He bows down and he worships. And then he runs back. He's like, get up. The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. He divides them into 300 men, three, three companies, or three, yeah. He divides them into three companies. He places trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all the men with torches inside. Follow my lead. Let's go. I think this is where we start to see a little crack in this beautiful story. He says, let's surround the camp and then let's yell, for the Lord and for Gideon. <laughs> I think that's where we start to see some of the problems. Then this like really cool idea, they smash the pots, they blow the trumpets, the Midianites freak out, they think they're being attacked, they wake up in the middle of the night and they just grab swords and start, this is kind of gross, but like start hacking each other and then they think they're being attacked but it's really themselves like kind of attacking each other and God comes in and confuses the camp and they get super confused and they battle against each other, then they run away. Again, very, very loose paraphrase there. But it is important. The Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords, and then they fled. That's very important. The Lord did it. The Lord did it. So we see a little crack in Gideon's beautiful faith, I think, by him declaring for the Lord and for Gideon. Fast forward again through most of chapter 8. They end up defeating the Midianites. God does what he said he was going to do. He's both with Gideon and he, he defeats the Midianites for him. He uses Gideon for that. And then here's Gideon's great failure. In chapter 8, verse 22, the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon says to them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. That is the right answer, right? That is the right answer. That's the problem that Judges is addressing over and over, is that they are taking things into their own hands, and they are not living under the good king, kingship of Jesus. So Gideon gives the right answer, but his actions say otherwise. And then he says, he's probably a lot like me, like, just stop, just stop with your first statement. Like, don't keep going, Nate. That's where you get into trouble. And he said, I do have one request, though, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, which is about 43 pounds. 
not counting the ornaments, the pendants, the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. We then go on to read that he has 70 sons of his own because he had many wives, a concubine, and he had a concubine who lived in Shechem who also bore him a son who named, he named Abimelech. Do you know what Abimelech means? I mean, I don't know why you would, but it means my father is king. Dang. I will not be king. Hey, by the way, your son's, like my son's name is, my father is king. Like, it was very clear that given the opportunity to live under the lordship and kingship of Yahweh, Gideon chose to be king himself in his actions. And then to conclude this cycle, going back to uh, chapter 8, verse 28, at the very end it said, the land had peace for 40 years. I have three observations and four takeaways for us. The observations. When we were talking about the, the, the symbols or the, the story of God, there was these two forward arrows in them. The first arrow is Israel, right? Pointing forward to the promise of the Messiah. The second forward arrow is the church pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah again to fully reign and rule. Israel had finally received the blessing of land and had the opportunity to fully live out their calling, and yet they failed. We as the church have finally received the promised blessing of the Holy Spirit, God in us, and we too have the opportunity to live out our calling to be a light to the nations. Secondly, Judges, as a book, is the ever-descending spiral downward into selfishness and evil. But the church is meant to be the ever-increasing and growing spiral outward to bless the nations. Third, Gideon refused to be king in word but acted like a king indeed. Jesus is the eternal king who refused to sit on a throne and reign on earth but lived as a servant. I wanted these kind of macro visions before I go into the micro because I want us to, to remember who we are as the church as we look at kind of macroly this, um, this story of Gideon and Judges. We are not Israel. We have the spirit in us to go and be a light to the nations. But the way we do it is not by an ever like descending cycle into ourselves, but an ever increasing outward blessing to those around us. The goal is not to grow this moment here on a Sunday morning, but to see the church seep into every pocket and crack in creation around us. That's the call of the church. And we can do it because of the Spirit and because of Jesus and his kingship and his example as a servant who had 
every right to reign. Every right to reign. He's the anti-Gideon. He is the true Gideon who had every right to reign. That if they said, let us worship you and make you king, Jesus could have said yes. But he didn't. He chose to be a servant. We started off talking about faith and trust. Of course, uh, my example is so flawed. Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch can only be trusted so far. Maybe only in football. I don't know them as men. But Hebrews 11, 32, in passing, the author of Hebrews is like, dang, I just talked about all these amazing men and women of faith, but I didn't have a chance to talk about these people. And he just starts listing off names. And one of those names is Gideon. So Gideon, in this, the author of Hebrews, in this famous chapter on faith, recognizes Gideon as a man of faith. And so I want to talk about faith really quick and what it is not. And I'm going to use three double negatives to illustrate that. The first one, faith is not not asking questions. So faith is asking questions, but it's not not asking questions. The idea of why because I said so doesn't, you don't see that in scripture, which I think is actually kind of crazy because I think that's what a lot of us have heard. Just have faith. Just go because God said do it. There's some truth in that. So this is, these are like, all of these are like, I'm tentatively stepping into these. And I hope you hear my, my hesitation because it is tricky ground. This is why we shouldn't venerate preachers or anything. I'm a man like you with the same spirit as you. I just spent extra time in this passage this week. And so like I step forward hesitantly, but, but what I do want us to know is I want us to be people who can ask the hard questions and sit in those hard questions and be okay because God often doesn't answer the questions directly. He answers them in different ways. And often it's, here's who I am, here's what I've done, here's who you are, and here's what, here's what I want you to do. He still wants us to be obedient to him, of course, but it's not because I told you so. It's not because I said so. There's more to that. It's that, but way more. Faith is also not not answering for signs. So if, or asking for signs. Now, if I was like tiptoeing on some edge of uncertainty here, this one, I'm even a little more uncertain. But we serve a God who is so powerful. And gosh, this makes me want to cry because... Sometimes we're in such desperation that we need his help. And so, yes, I think signs, he could give us a sign in our desperation. I don't know if he does that often. I've heard stories of it, and I believe those stories. But I do think that God sometimes can give us signs. The reason I'm like trepidatiously talking about this is because of two things Jesus says. <laughs> Jesus says two things. One time, now he's talking to the, to the Pharisees, and we know he's extra harsh on them, who is also kind of us as church leaders, so there's a parallel there. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. So this is why I'm a bit trepidatious at first. 
because we have already been given the greatest sign. There is an empty tomb. We have been given the greatest sign. So if you're in that place of desperation, you're crying out to God, I would really highly commend you to remember the empty tomb of Jesus. That is the first sign. That is the first sign and, and the greatest sign. But even after the empty tomb, tomb, we have Doubting Thomas, right? Who we've talked about recently. When, when Jesus approaches Thomas, he essentially does what Thomas asked for. Not until I see the marks in his hands will I believe, okay? So this is where I felt a little more confidence to step out and say not, not asking for signs. Because Thomas, after the resurrection, wanted a sign and Jesus appeared to him and allowed him to touch him. So again, it's like, this is where it's a little confusing. But, but Jesus also says in that moment, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Can God give us signs? I ab- He's a living God. Of course he can. Should we ask for signs? Whew. Maybe. There's one that's already been given. I know I, I can say that for sure. If you want a sign, look to the risen Jesus. But I also know, gosh, it's, it's, there is so much freaking brokenness. There's so much brokenness that it's just hard. This life is hard to live in. And so I, that's where I'm like, I'm standing over here. I think sometimes in our desperation, we can ask for a sign. Third double negative. Faith is not not being scared. Faith is not not being scared. I, so in some ways, like having faith is like an ex- exhibit of you in your fear doing something. <laughs> so in some ways it feels like fear and fear is tied to, to faith in some ways. And God is so gracious to Gideon when he recognizes that fear before he attacks and says, if you're afraid, let me give you a sign. Let me give you a sign. God in his grace, let me give you a sign. Go down, listen to this, and that's going to give you courage to move on. And the sign is a reaffirmation of what God's already said, right? It's the Midian, I'm going to give the Midianites into your hand. So he's being consistent. His sign is consistent with what he's already said. And finally, I guess I could have made this a, I'll, I'll make it a double negative just to round it out. Faith is not being, no, I can't do it. It was going to be a double negative with a like negative. So faith is not being perfect. I was going to say not Faith is not not being imperfect, and that just got too confusing. Faith is not being perfect. Emily often tells our kids, I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm just asking you to listen to me. I'm just asking you to listen to me. Gideon was far from perfect. He had so many questions. He needed God to show him multiple signs. He needed God to show him the way. And after all of those signs, like he has like some of the most amazing signs and interactions with God in the whole of Scripture, even after they defeat the Midianites with 300 people, 
he still takes on this mantle of the king and leads Israel into idolatry. We're going to come to the communion table in a minute, and as we do, we're going to remember Jesus' death. Something I don't know if we do often enough is also as we approach the table, I want us to remember our own death. We have died to sin. There's something cool that happens. We come and we remember Jesus' death, but then we walk away. And as we approach and we're, we're remembering Jesus' death, I want us to think of our own death, our death to the old man, to the old nature, to the old self. And as we take the elements, I want us to remember our new life in the same way that we, aren't, we don't have to dwell on the death. We have to remember and move into the, to the resurrection. But as we come up here, I want us to, to be mindful of our questions, our doubts, our fears, our failure, and bring all that to the cross. All of the things that make you feel unworthy, uh, less than, that gets taken to the cross with Christ. And as we walk away, full of the Spirit, forgiven, loved, cherished, and able to walk in bold faith as a church blessed to be a blessing. By way of reminder, the taking of the elements is for those who have chosen to follow Jesus. It's something, uh, a sacred, it's a sacred and ancient act. And so if you haven't quite, if you've still got all these questions going on in your mind and you, you haven't made that decision, sing with us, stand with us but it is for those who have chosen to, to walk with Jesus. And by way of double reminder, families, as, as I think Charlie mentioned last week, uh, your families, the little kids are more than welcome to come forward with you, but we will be, unless they have uh, been baptized or have made a profession of faith, we ask that uh, we're actually just going to give the elements to you as the parents and ask that you administer them to your kids uh, back uh, at your seat. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for using, choosing and using imperfect people to be about your work. And even amidst our failure and our fears and our questions and our doubts, you are good. And your word is true. Your word, not just about who you are, but about who we are. And we're so thankful that all you ask is that we believe. The simplest of choices to, to believe and follow you. You're a great God. Thank you for your spirit that convicts, that comforts, that leads, that guides, that reveals to us more of who you are. Spirit, as we come to the table with our fears and frustrations and guilts and doubts and shame, would they be left there at the table with Jesus? And would we walk away free in the power of your spirit, equipped and enabled to, to be your broken people in this broken world, to show them who the unbroken one is? That's you, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>